Welcome to the Sunday message from Hollyview Church in Boring, Oregon. We gather every Sunday morning as a worshiping community of Jesus followers on mission to see God glorified in our lives, our cities, and around the world. At Hollyview, the Bible serves as our foundation and guide for both life and ministry. It tells the story of God and the story of us. We believe the better we know the themes and flow of the biblical story, the better we will be able to find our little place in God's grand storyline. Thank you for joining us. And now here's this week's message from Hollyview Church. We're in James chapter 3, and Pastor Joel Woodard brings his message, Our Words Painting Our Hearts. Good morning. Thank you, guys. Thanks for that good illustration I'll use later in my sermon that we're speaking about words today. And uh, um, I want to add my welcome to you. My name is Joel. I'm the pastor here, and we're just delighted that you're here with us. Uh, I want to add my welcome along with Gina. Uh, however you came this morning, we're glad you're here. Uh, and we're praying uh, that you would encounter the Lord here uh, more than anything else. And you, you would encounter him through his word and through his people. So uh, we're, just, we're glad you're here this morning. Uh, we're going to dismiss children to Children's Church. Is that right? So first through fifth grade. Go ahead out. If, uh, and if you have a Bible, we'll be in James chapter 3 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's in, it's in the pew in front of you. It'll be on nine, page 951 if you want to follow along. It'll also be up on the, uh, the screen as well. Uh, I, I imagine this will be my shortest message I ever give. Would you stand with me uh, as we read James uh, chapter 3 and verse, just verse 1. James 3 and verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Let's stop right there. All God's people said? Which means this morning, I'm glad I'm not standing up there. Uh, I'm glad I'm sitting back here. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your holy text of Scripture that was written so long ago, but written for us today, that pierces through our hearts and our soul, that, that challenges us, that leaves uh, us undone in our own strength, Lord, and brings us back to you for healing and comfort. And Lord, as we, uh, we talk about such a weighty matter today, I pray that you would uh, reveal areas uh, that need to be healed that need to be uh, touched, that you, would, um, that you would bring healing to places in our lives where words have just left us destroyed. And Lord, would you bring repentance uh, to us when our words have destroyed others? So Lord, I, I just pray that this morning our eyes would be open, our, our, our ears would be open, our hearts would be soft to your words. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can go ahead and have a, have a seat. Uh, before we jump into uh, this text of Scripture in James 3, I actually want to illustrate, uh, illustrate it with a, with a story. Uh, I want to introduce you to a, a painter named Banksy. Has anyone ever heard of Banksy before? Yeah, Banksy's a, he's not a very uh, famous painter. He, he actually has never sold 
uh, a piece of art ever before. And yet in 2010 in Time Magazine, he was, uh, he was like recognized as one of the most influential people uh, of that year in 2010. Banksy paintings, they appear actually as graffiti uh, all over uh, the world. And he paints them in these places uh, that actually reveals the condition of what's happening in those uh, places. Uh, so you, you find his paintings all over, and, he, and no one knows who Banksy is. They call him Banksy. Uh, they think he's from Bristol, England, but nobody really knows uh, where he's ever uh, even from. He hasn't really gotten any money. He's not after popularity or power or authority, and he doesn't want to even be known, but he wants to paint to reveal the condition of, of life in certain areas. Uh, and there was a, a town in Wales called Port Talbot. It's one of the, one of the dirtiest, poorest towns in all of, all of the UK. It has the largest steel mill there. And, and all over that town, depending on which way the wind blows, there would be this, this black ash that would cover over uh, the city. Really poor area, often forgotten area, but it's the industrial modern revolution. Look at where we're doing, what we can do. But below the, the surface of things, uh, it, was, it was kind of a sad place to be. So Banksy, he actually went over there, went to one of the poorest areas of, of town and found this corner uh, wall, and there he painted a, a picture. And on one half of the picture, you, you see this little boy. It looks like a winter wonderland painted in black and white with, with the snow coming down. And you see this boy uh, just, just loving, uh, and you feel happy, right? Oh, that's just fun, like a snow day, and everything's great. But if you step back and you see the whole picture, you see around the other side of the corner, you actually see that it's a dumpster on fire. And actually, that's not snow that's coming down. That's ash of garbage that's falling on him. And, and all of a sudden, it's a different feeling, isn't it? Like, you just see the one picture, and you're like, oh, it's beautiful, like, winter wonderland. And then you take the step back and see a different perspective, and all of a sudden you feel, like, sad and almost, like, outraged. Like, how can you let this, this happen to, to it? But, but Banksy, he's not after money or power or anything. He's actually wanting to paint the condition uh, of life in that area. Now, this morning... In the same way that Banksy paints a picture to reveal the condition of our world, we're going to see that your words paint the condition of your heart. Your words paint the condition of your heart. You know, so we can often put on nice clothes, a nice face, uh, uh, everything seems to be fine, but actually our words, if you listen closely, they'll, they'll reveal what's going on inside of you, the condition of your heart. Now, you might be feeling this morning, maybe like Caleb, you know, man, I've already said something bad. <laughs> uh, how do, uh, I've already said something, man, that's just joking a little bit, Caleb, but you've already said something like, oh, I've said something harshful this last week, or something that wasn't true, or, or, or something that I'm just, I'm, I regret saying, and you already, you already feel bad this morning. Maybe you wish you could take it back. And you come in here this morning, you go, well, how do I tame my tongue? How do I control the words that I say so I don't say something dumb again? Something I'll regret. How, how do I filter what I say? Well, that brings us back to our, our text, as James is going to help us navigate this whole world of words. See, so he starts in chapter 3 and verse 1 and says, uh, be careful, teachers. Uh, we're going to be judged strictly. But he doesn't stop there. Him, even as a teacher, doesn't go, uh, and end of the book. He actually wants to help us understand the world of our words. 
He was going to point out four things to us this morning. And as we're going to read the chapter, we're going to stop at four different points to make observations about the words that we speak. Uh, we're going to see a lot of illustration, just like James uses, a lot of illustrations that uh, paint this picture of these, uh, the world of our, our words and how it uh, just kind of shows what's going on inside of us. But these pictures, he's going to use like a wisdom literature. So if you're here in, in January, we went through Proverbs. I taught you a Hebrew uh, word. Um, uh, the word is sh- uh, mashal. Do you remember that? Grandma's shawl? Mashal. Mashal is the Hebrew word for Proverbs, and it means to set two things beside uh, each other. And so we're going to see that today, as James is going to put two things beside each other. They either compare or contrast. And there's an order to this, as James will uh, compare, contrast, compare, contrast um, in our text today. Uh, It's very wisdom uh, literature-oriented. So let's, uh, let's dive in. James 3 and verse 1. Since not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue, it's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Let's, let's just pause right there and make our first observation. Here's, here's number one if you're taking notes. Number one, observations of our words. Number one is words are powerful. Words are powerful. You know, God spoke the world into existence by a word. Words are what shaped you in your life. You're probably the occupation you're in because someone saw something and spoke a word to you that shaped you. Or maybe it's so defined you in other areas, the words that have been said to you. I just want to think just for a minute about the tongue in our mouths. I did a little research, well, I actually Googled it. Uh, how, how much does the tongue weigh? And it weighs about two pounds, they say in general, uh, two pounds. It's about three inches long. Uh, so it's a one, 1% or 2% of our body mass is our, t- our tongues, and yet it is one of the most powerful parts of our bodies. One, one to 2% of our body, the most powerful part of our body. He, James gives us two illustrations of this, of, of two powerful Things he, he says of one of a horse and one of a ship. And, and, and as he explains them, he talks about how powerful these things are. A horse. A horse is made for strength. We, we even measure our cars by horsepower. Like, we're way beyond horses in power, and yet we still measure things by a horse. Because horses are such strong animals. Uh, they did this ex- experiment where they said, well, how many uh, men power is equivalent to a horse power? So they did this tug of war. Have any of you guys heard of this? They set up 18 men, like physically fit, strong men, uh, to pull one horse to see who could win in a tug of war. Uh, 18 strong men or a horse. Guess who won? The horse, yes. Because horses are so strong. If you've ever been bucked off a horse, you know how strong a horse is. If you've ever been kicked by a horse, you're not here today. 
I was like, if you're like, if you're maybe almost almost kicked, and you're like, your heart starts racing, you know how strong they are. Horses are powerful creatures, and and yet there's something even stronger than a horse, and it's this little piece of metal that doesn't look like anything. You're like, how can that? A horse is like strong and powerful, and yet you put that little bit in the horse's mouth, and that has more power than the horse. It'll tell it exactly where to go. Just that little thing. And all by itself, you're like, that's not very powerful, but put in the right position. It is stronger than the horse itself. It leads and guides and directs it. It's power over the power, the horse. The next thing he talks about is a ship. The ship that's huge and strong that can carry loads of things. It's driven by this powerful wind. And if you want to change it, you need men on oars straining their backs to try and turn a, a, a ship. It's powerful. It carries so much. But again, all you really need is just a little rudder in the back of it, placed in just the right place. And it has more power than the ship itself. It tells it where it should go. These small little things, a bit and a rudder, they don't seem like much, and yet they have power over even the most powerful things. Power to control power. So James, he would not agree with that playground saying that we all learned at recess. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. James would be like, not right. That's a lie. We need to change it. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can wound and cut so deep that it shapes someone for the rest of their life. Your words are powerful. Your words have power to to tear down and destroy, and your words have power to heal and restore. Uh, there was a girl in Slovenia. She actually gave her life to Christ when we were there. Her name was Anya, one of our closest friends. Uh, Anya accepted the Lord, was always a part of these meetings that we had, but she never once sang a worship song. Because when she was a little kid, someone told her, you have a horrible singing voice. Shaped the rest of her life. Words have the power to destroy or build up, injure or to heal. And so as we always say, well, your actions are more important than your words. I don't know if James would say that. Say, well, what I say really doesn't matter. Well, I don't think that's true. James would say your words are powerful. That's the first one. Let's continue, let's continue reading. James 3, verse 5, the second part of it. It says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Let's stop once again. Here's our second observation about our words. Number two, words can't be tamed. Words can't be tamed. And the funny thing about this is, as I read this chapter and you read this chapter, our number one question is, how do I control what I say? How do I tame my tongue? 
There's probably even a, a title over this chapter in your Bibles if you look down, and it says, Taming the Tongue, right? And James says clearly, no human being has tamed the tongue. No human effort, no human strength can do that. But it doesn't mean God can't do that. And we'll see that later on. It's just not in our power. He, he contrasts two images here about words can't be tamed. He, he'll paint a picture of fire and then paint a picture of these animals, of fire and animals. It's a, a contrasting these two. Uh, a fire, just a small spark especially in the Pacific Northwest in uh, about August time, we know uh, how this works, right? One little ember that's not put out from a campfire, a chain dragging behind a car, sparks into uh, some dry grass, and it just sets on fire. Do you remember in 2017, those kids in the gorge that are playing with fireworks? Well, it sets on fire the entire gorge and 50,000 acres burned. They set that firework off, not thinking what's going to happen from this. It's just a small firework. It's not a big deal. But as soon as that fire catches, like the ember catches on fire, the whole gorge is up. We can picture it in our mind. You can't get that back. You can't control it. You can't, you can't do anything about it. Even in Oregon, though, we try, and we try and limit at least. We have these fire breaks, and we actually spend $500 million a year uh, fighting wildfires. But we don't even really fight them. We just try to contain them and let them consume themselves in these places because the fires, like, they go on their own. Now, we have, we have like, airplanes and tanker trucks and lots of people. We have resources that we think we can try and at least contain, contain them, maybe not tame them, but contain them. Think about in James' day, when a fire would come, what would happen? they just have to sit back and let it just destroy and consume everything. All because of a little spark, a little, little flame, a little fire. Well, fire, you, you, can't, you can't control it. He contrasts that with animals. And he says, uh, the animals, the birds, the fish, the, the creatures of the sea. He, he gives us these three categories. And, and if you have uh, picked it up from a Bible scholar kind of thing, you're thinking, hey, those are the three categories of creation. We are supposed to, to rule and have dominion over those uh, creatures. And that's kind of what J James is alluding to. Uh, re remember those, all those animals that we have? They're, you're supposed to, to tame them, to have dominion over them. H how are you doing with, with that? Just that alone? Well, I have a black lab at home named Jack. And if you know anything about black labs, uh, they're, really they're really obedient. They're good dogs if you train them well. Uh, we have, it's, ours is a family dog, and so uh, he knows how to sit, lay down, shake, stay. Um, he doesn't like to roll over, but he'll only do those things if he feels like it. <laughs> uh, if you have food in front of him, if you have food, he'll, he'll, he's like, oh, I'm here, I'm totally attentive. As soon as the food goes away, he's like, eh, I'm not quite sure I really want to even do that. That's what the black lab the animals that, that God has given us control of to have dominion over, I, I think we do an okay job uh, sometimes, but that's difficult. And James is going, if, if, if what God has given us power to have dominion over, we can't even get right. How do you think you're going to do with your tongue? How much more difficult is it to tame the words that come out of your mouth? 
James says, no human being can tame the tongue. The, the words leave our mouth and you can't get them back. There, have you ever been in a conversation and you're saying something and as you're saying it, you're like, why am I saying this? I, I need to stop saying this right now. But it's like they almost take a life of their own as they go out and you instantly regret it. I'd like to call Amy up here now, and she'll tell you all the times that we've been in conversation, and I'm saying something, and I'm like, why am I saying this? I'm going to be digging out of a hole for the rest of the <laughs> night for this. But, but they, just, they just keep coming. Why did I say that? Have any of you said that? Why did I say that? No? No one? Just me? Okay. <laughs> why did... No, I know. All of you. Why did I say that? Well, James is going to help us understand that. Look, look in James 3 in verse 9. He says, with it, with our tongues, with our words, we, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We'll stop again right there. Here's their third observation. Your words reveal your heart. Your words reveal your heart. We think, why did I say that? And James goes, because you're drawing from the wrong source. He gives us two illustrations, water and fruit. That's kind of how I narrowed them down, water and fruit. He says, water. Uh, from a spring that you find, that fresh water comes out. You're not going to find salt water there. It's fresh water. You go to a pond, especially in the Middle East, and it's just sitting there stagnant, and it's salt water. You're not going to find fresh water there. Uh, the source determines uh, what kind of water is there. In the same way, fig trees produce figs. If you go to grapevines, you're going to get grapes. This isn't hard, right? This is not, <laughs> this is not a rocket science. If you go to a fig tree and you're hoping for a grape, you're going to be disappointed, right? The tree determines the fruit. Figs from fig trees, grapes from grapevines. But when we say something we regret, ah, oh, why did I say that? And James is like, you're picking from the wrong tree. He says it's like you're going to a grapevine and you're like, oh, I really want a fig. And you pick the grape off and you go, ah, a grape. I can't believe it. <laughs> you throw it down and you get more convinced. You've taken your self-help courses and you're strong. And you go back to the grapevine. Come on, fig. A grape again. <laughs> Dang it. Again and again. And what? James is like, stop. Stop picking from the grapevine. You, you, you're going to get a grape every time you go to that source. He says, all you need to do is turn to the fig tree. You turn to the fig tree and you pick something, what are you going to get? A fig. It's the source determines the fruit. Well, this picture of what we do is the same picture of what we do when we speak. Uh, we don't pick fruit, we pick our words, actually. Jesus says we speak from the overflow of our hearts. Uh, this isn't a message on buckle down and do better, be better with your mouth. 
muscle down and just, uh, come on, you can do it. The message James is giving us is just stop and repent. In that moment, just repent. You're, you're going to the wrong source. You need to go to a different source. It's like, it's like you're in the Garden of Eden and you have two trees in front of you. And he's saying, which tree are you going to pick from? Well, this brings us to our last section today. Is he's going to contrast the fruit of two trees. The fruit of two trees. James 3, verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness. Like over an abundance of fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here's the first, fourth observation about our words. Words display wisdom's source. Words display wisdom's source. James contrasts two things here. Earthly wisdom with wisdom from above. Earthly wisdom where we could just say foolishness, right? Earthly wisdom or foolishness from wisdom from above. Foolishness or, or wisdom. You know, we talked about it in Proverbs. There's, there's two paths, two ways. Or you could say there are two trees here. So let's look at the fruit of each of these trees. The, the first one, the fruit of the tree of foolishness. This is the fruit of the tree of foolishness. When you reach out and you pick your words and they have uh, these things in them, you're going to the wrong source. Bitter jealousy. When you're angry at others, at what they have and you don't, there's this discontent, this frustration in it. You're picking from the wrong tree. The selfish ambition. When it comes out as only me, my, I, all about me. I don't, I don't, I don't care about other people. I, I'm driven and I'm all alone. It's earthly. It's based on our senses, our emotions, what we feel, what we desire. Unspiritual. It's doing it in your own, in your own strength. It's not, it's saying, it's not saying, I'm going to pray to the Lord, or I'm going to recognize God's sovereignty over this. I'm going to do it on my own. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. And, and I think uh, this is really like gaining power from something that fuels you, that's outside of yourself, but it's also outside of the Lord. Some drive that you have that gives you this power, and it could be spiritual being, but something that gives you this power outside of God. It's a disorder. There's chaos, confusion. It's feeling lost. There's vile practice. It's anything that's in rebellion of God. It's anything that is turned away from the tree of life. Those are the, that's the fruit of the tree of foolishness. And when we, when we speak and we hear those things, we should, we should be like, oh, I'm drawing from the wrong source. Here's the fruit of the tree of wisdom. And the, the contrast couldn't be more uh, starker in this. First, it's pure. doesn't hide or manipulate. There's no exaggeration or angle. 
It's, it's the same all the way through. It's pure. It's peaceable. There is a, there's a calm from this tree, even in the midst of storms, even in the midst of these burdens that you're carrying, the tree, the fruit from the tree of, of wisdom, it's peaceable. It's gentle. It's patient and careful. It's tender and kind. It's open to reason. It's humble. It doesn't come in thinking, I know everything and you don't know anything. It's open to, to reason. It's opening to listening to someone else. It's full of mercy. It doesn't, doesn't judge people on first appearance. It withholds that criticism of others until they actually know them. It, it, it's full of, of mercy. It's full of good fruits. Isn't that interesting? Pick from the tree. Full of good fruits. It gives what produces life and sustains goodness. It's impartial. It sees everyone in the image of God. Even, even the dirtiness that some people have, they see at the core that this person is made in the image of God. It's sincere. It's genuine. It's not saying something just to look good. It's speaking actually from the heart. And, and James says, picking this fruit results in this harvest of righteousness. And righteousness is not, now I've all got it all together. Righteousness goes back to this relational aspect of things. This, this harvest of right, righteousness means that you have a right relationship with the Lord and a right relationship with other people. Picking from that tree, you, you have, uh, you're in right relationships with everyone. Well, on average, and I just did the average because I didn't want to do like men and women. Uh, just the average, uh, people speak about 7,000 words a day. Uh, you can make your own judgments on, I just did the average. Uh, 7,000 words a day is how much uh, you speak. So when I'm done with this, my day is half done. Uh, and each word you speak, every time a word comes from your mouth, you are, you're picking those words from one of two trees. Uh, sometimes you go to the tree of life and you pick from that and you give words of encouragement and healing and it's, it's a delight to people. And then the next moment you go over and you pick from this tree of foolishness and you tear somebody down or you talk about how ugly they are or, 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 or I can't believe they would even say that, how dumb are they? We, we tear people down. And sometimes, I even think we even put out our, our hands and grab both of them from the same time, don't we? And James says, this is ought not to be. So it still comes back to our, our question then, how do we tame the tongue? And I think James has guided us to this image, if you can picture it, that you are standing between two trees every time you open your mouth. Every time you're about to speak, I think the recognition of you're picking your words like you're picking fruit. Which tree are you picking from? Before you speak, stop and go, Lord, are these, are these words going to reflect you? Lord, are these words, are they, are they filled in me so much that I can pour them out to other people? Lord, speak to me. Fill me with your words. Let your words wash over me so that when I speak, I'm full of mercy and gentleness and love. 
See, your words paint to the world the condition of your heart. Now, if you're feeling convicted at all this morning, if you're feeling hopeless, like, how do I ever do this? Here's the good news. Is that every time we turn to Jesus, Jesus is there to wash over us with his words that say, I forgive you. Because of my death and resurrection, you're forgiven, you're set free. So, so come, to turn to Jesus and receive that forgiveness and mercy. John tells us that the Word became flesh. That, that the Word from above, this wisdom, became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could actually picture what this fruit of the tree of wisdom is, is like in Jesus. He actually sat down with his disciples on the night before he was going to get crucified, and he wants to give them the meaning, the word, the word in flesh. And when Jesus does that, he explains the meaning of his death and resurrection to his disciples, and he gives them a meal, a meal with such deep, rich symbolism that I think we often forget it or at least forget elements of it at times. Uh, so I wanted to, this morning, before we have uh, celebrate communion, I wanted to take just a few minutes uh, to remind us about the practice and sacrament of communion. Uh, it's rich in meaning, but can often be forgotten, even if it's just been a few weeks since we've done it. Uh, the church in Corinth a few years after Jesus. They're not long uh, after Jesus' time, and yet we find they've already forgotten what uh, the Lord's Supper was about. Only several years removed, and they needed to be reminded by Paul. Uh, I want to read in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17, Paul's instruction to the church who had forgotten what the meaning of the Lord's Supper was. He says, but in the following instructions in verse 17, I do not commend you, because you have come together, and it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk." What? Don't you remember? Do, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Uh, the Lord's Supper, the very beginning part of it, was, was converted over from the Passover. And the Passover was a meal that they would celebrate together. So the early church said, yes, let's do this meal together. Let's spend the time. It's relational. Let's, let's all bring like a potluck, right? A potluck to come in, everyone give their things, and it's great. Except somewhere along the way, the church in Corinth forgot about that and said those people who had more or who brought their, like, their best dish that they really liked uh, came together, and then they started eating by themselves. And then they started drinking the, the wine by themselves. And they're like, they're really enjoying it. Isn't this great? But then there are people on the other side of the room who, who have like nothing, have like a little piece of bread. 
And, and they're starving because that week they didn't have anything. They'd been rejected by everyone. They, they were feeling lost and alone and broken. And the people on that side didn't even recognize the people on that side. He says, how tragic. How tragic of you. Church, you come together, you think it's the Lord's Supper, but it's not. You've lost the meaning. Because these people cared less about these people. So Paul goes on to say, and this is in verse 27, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. Well, what's the unworthy manner? You didn't recognize your brother and sister who was hurting, who was hungry, who was alone. You didn't notice or care for those people around you. Verse 28 says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, without seeing those around you, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give you more directions when I, when I get there. Now, now we often, I, I think this is one of the elements we've often missed as a church, at least when I grew up. We talked about the communion as a personal time between you and the Lord, and it is. It's a beautiful time relationship, a righteousness between you and the Lord. You're in the right relationship. And if you're not there this morning, I would encourage you, you can do it right now. You just need to confess your sins to the Lord, say, I'm sorry, will you be my king? And he'll be like, absolutely. Uh, I've paid for that through my son, through his death and resurrection. Uh, but if you're here and you've accepted the Lord, he's also saying, as you've gathered, you have a responsibility to the people that are around you. There's people that have come here this morning that have walked through just some horrible things this week. And there's some people that have come here that are feeling like, man, this is the best week of my life. There, there's some people here that are doubting things. There's some people here who, who, who are like just wondering, what's the next step for me? And as we come to the Lord's table, Jesus like, I want you to get your eyes up. I want you to see the people around you. You're a community of my followers. So he says, uh, as you come to the table, make sure you're discerning the body. Make sure you're recognizing those around you. Uh, so I'm going to ask the servers to come in just a minute. Uh, we have, we've already asked some people to, to come and serve. But I'm going to do something a little different. Uh, and I think the symbolism in communion is so rich and deep that every time we come, we can even look at different aspects of it and see like a diamond, just the beautifulness of it. So this isn't to discount other aspects of communion, but this time I want to ask you, uh, as we come together as a church, this might be the time when uh, a widow or a widower feels more alone than they've ever felt before. It's kind of tragic, right? It might be the time when somebody who comes in and feels like, man, I got a messed up past. Do I really belong here? Uh, they feel, I feel really alone. When actually communion is the place to be like, ne the person next to you 
make sure they know that you're, you're praying for them, that you care about them. Uh, so you can do that just by yourself and close your eyes and as the uh, elements are being passed out. But I'm going to ask you, hey, be praying for somebody else. Be, be praying for the person next to you. Uh, be praying, praying for the person who's, who's sick uh, at home. Uh, Curtis is sick. So if the whole church prays for Curtis, that's a win uh, for me. As we're praying for the body. And then let them know afterwards, hey, we're praying for you. Or, or maybe there's somebody in the seat next to you who's sitting by themselves. Just scooch over. Uh, and if it's not awkward, maybe put your hand around them and, and just pray uh, for them. Uh, let's be commun- community together, okay? Uh, so I'm going to have the servers uh, come forward. And let me pray. And then uh, I'll go from there. Lord, we so, we so desire this place. And I know the heart of everyone in this place is that this would be uh, more like a hospital than a cruise. That it would be a place where people come in with hurts and baggage and burdens. Lord, and they could um, feel your love, your healing, your forgiveness uh, through the through your words and through the community that you brought here. So, Lord, I pray that even as we come to this time, that we would not neglect the body. We would not neglect the people who are sitting here, that no one would uh, come here feeling alone or an outcast and leave the same way. And, Lord, I don't know how that really happens other than your spirit at work. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in each one of us over these next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. early church did it around a meal and they had this one loaf of bread that they would all rip from and they had this one cup that they would drink from that symbolized this unity we do it a little bit different and that's okay because it's uh, the symbolism there is a lot of uh, richness right in the middle of that section that we we just walked through in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, this is probably the most well known part of that section in verse 23 says for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you You see that? He receives something and he's giving it to other people. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Uh, I want all of you to just kind of just smash it, rip it in your your hands. Uh, I think sometimes it's a little bit too clean. We should have breadcrumbs on the floor. He, he, He broke it and said, this is my body broken, which is for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. He continued and said, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Just wait a second. Because this cup, if you're holding it in Jesus, is the great equalizer. If you're holding it, there is no partiality. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or how wealthy or poor you are or what language you speak or what country you go to. It doesn't matter at all if you're holding this cup. The blood of Jesus makes us all one. So the, the words we speak 
then are washed over with the blood of Jesus so that we're impartial and merciful and kind and gentle because this is the great equalizer. Do this in remembrance of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us so that we could see and feel and experience what uh, life and forgiveness is all about. Lord, that we can uh, understand the, the, just the depravity of our sin and what it cost your son, and that it can be uh, result in f- righteousness, a right relationship between us and God and us and others. And so, Lord, I pray even as this week as we go about, we would remember to continually uh, draw from the right source, that we wouldn't use our words to tear other people down or to build ourselves up, but that we would speak from an overflow of our heart that's connected to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from Hollyview Church. We invite you to join us in person for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. You can find us on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off of Highway 212, between Boring and Damascus, Oregon, or find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Together, we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word to share God's grace and truth. Again, whether online or in person, thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church.